Welcome to the New Books Network. The UN General Assembly recently completed its annual UNGA week of discussions, side meetings, and off-site gatherings. The largest diplomatic conclave in the world, bringing together ambassadors and dignitaries from around the globe. It annually clogs the east side of Manhattan with black SUVs and taxis ferrying VIPs to their destinations. This year, however, a number of top world leaders skipped the event, raising questions about the influence of the 75-year-old body. So what's going on at the UN? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Richard Gowan, UN Director of the International Crisis Group, or ICG. For those who may not be familiar, the ICG is a sort of international Brookings institution with experts on the many regions of the world, often located on the ground in those regions. Richard Gowan has worked with the European Council on Foreign Relations, New York University's Center Center on International Cooperation, and the Foreign Policy Center in London. He's taught at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University and at Stanford in New York. He has worked as a consultant for organizations including the UN Department of Political Affairs, the UN Office of the Special Representative of the Secretary General on International Migration, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, Rasmussen Global, the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the Finnish Ministry for Foreign Affairs and, and, and Global Affairs Canada. From 2013 to 2019, he wrote a weekly column called Diplomatic Fallout for the journal World Politics Review. Thanks so much for joining us today, Richard Gowan. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you're very busy. So you just spent the week at the annual so-called UNGA. Uh, so what did you see? I saw a lot of people rushing around. And this was quite a striking year because for the last three years, the UN high-level weeks have been limited by various COVID restrictions. And this was the first year when all those restrictions were lifted and there was a surge of diplomats and NGO folk and others uh, in Manhattan. It was incredibly busy. Uh, There were, I think, over 130 presidents and prime ministers uh, at the UN. But there was also a certain sense of dissonance, because on the one hand, if you were there, you could see all these people milling around and all this activity. But if you picked up a copy of any newspaper or The Economist, you found that there were lots of stories about how the UN is in decline and how the UN is losing importance. There was a big focus, as you said at the outset, on who was not at the General Assembly. And there were quite a lot of well-known 
figures missing, uh, such as Xi Jinping from China, Emmanuel Macron from France, and uh, Narendra Modi from India. I have to say that I, I think the focus on who was missing is slightly misleading because there were also lots of very important people who were in New York, um, not just Joe Biden, but also uh, Lula from Brazil, Schultz from Germany, many other leaders were, were in town. But nonetheless, the fact, the fact that a few key players were absent seemed to sort of shape the narrative around this big meeting. So if you were there, it felt busy and it felt important. But seen from farther away, it, it clearly looked like the UN was not having the greatest year. Well, so some of your own comments in the press suggested that you shared this narrative to some degree. Um, so, I mean, I understand, you know, depends, depends on what your perspective is or how far or close you are from these events, you know, what seems to be going on. Uh, but you know, what's your own sense as, you know, in your official capacity as ICG director for the UN? So at the end of the day, I don't worry too much that at least this year, some of the leaders were missing. I think you can overinterpret it. Um, one of the reasons that quite a few of these leaders were not in New York was that the G20 had just met in Delhi. And evidently, for some big global figures, you know, the G20 was enough. They, you know, they had their summit. That's that's an important decision-making moment. They didn't feel any real need to come on to the UN for a, a further summit. However, what struck struck me, as, as often strikes me, is that the GA um, is still a really great platform for leaders of small countries, but also leaders of middle powers and there were many notable figures such as president boric of chile um working the halls of, of the un last week i think moving away from this sort of fascination with who was there and who was not there uh i do think this has been a hard year for the un i think we have seen the poison emanating from Russia's war on Ukraine, uh, doing more and more damage to diplomatic cooperation around the organization. We have seen that in the Security Council, where Russia has acted as a spoiler on some fairly key issues, um, such as blocking humanitarian aid to Syria. But we also saw it in the run-up to the General Assembly, as Russia, along with a few hardline friends like Cuba, tried to undermine a, a big UN declaration on development. And so I think, I think we're seeing Moscow becoming more assertive, less embarrassed about blocking UN diplomacy. That is worrying. And then more broadly, there has been a lot of tension over the last year between developed and developing countries. And um, there have been some pretty nasty debates around the UN about why the US and other Western countries are not living up to their previous commitments on development aid and, and climate change related aid. I mean, that that has overshadowed the institution for much of the year. 
Um, I, I thought there was a bit of progress last week in easing those tensions. Western leaders were very clear that they do want to help poorer countries deal with their economic problems. Um, so that was good. But nonetheless, you know, still still these sort of quite old school UN north north south tensions um are very very obvious around the organization. So, you know, you mentioned the G20 having more or less immediately preceded uh UNGA week and you know the fact that some people may have felt they had countries to run rather than meetings uh, <laughs> to go to in New York. Uh, but there has also been, it seems to me, a discussion, and you've just kind of hinted at this, uh, a discussion about, you know, the growing importance of regional or non sort of global level institutions. And I mean, the other case in point here, of course, is BRICS, which, you know, got a lot of, has gotten a lot of attention recently. But it seems to me until that recent meeting uh you know, has widely been seen as sort of incoherent as a platform for, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin to, you know, uh, uh, promote his own foreign policy or whatever. Uh, so I wonder what you could say, what you would say about, you know, the idea that there's kind of rising uh, significance in global agenda setting of these more regional organizations. I think that even, even the most ardent UN fan has to admit that decision-making is moving away from New York uh, to some of these other venues. Ever since 2008 and 2009 and the financial crisis, it's been clear that the G20 is the, you know, the premier platform for major economy discussions about uh, global economic affairs. And that, I mean, that's something which generations of UN diplomats have complained about because they do feel that the prominence of the G20 undermines the UN. Now, that was an especially acute issue this year because unusually India hosted the G20 in September just before the General Assembly, whereas in most years the G20 summit takes place in November. Um, So the... The fact that the two events were very close together brought out this, uh, you know, this reality that the G20 has eclipsed um, the UN on economic matters. Uh, More generally, the G7 has come back to life in recent years and really in the last two years as a platform for Western powers to coordinate. And clearly the US, UK and other Western powers do see the G7 as quite an important directorate, if you will, in dealing with some of the economic problems associated with tensions uh, with China and Russia. And then the Chinese are responding to the resurgence of the G7 by trying to rework the BRICS as a a non-Western coalition. I still don't think we know how successful the Chinese effort will be. Um, Certainly one of the BRICS, uh, the I, India, is not keen at all on the idea of China positioning itself as the natural leader of the global south. But nonetheless, the BRICS did decide to expand um, a few weeks ago. And so we do seem to be entering a period of club politics 
where you know key players on the global stage will prioritize the G20 or the G7 or the BRICS or some combination of those. I mean, as I, as, as I said before, that doesn't render the General Assembly irrelevant. Um, the General Assembly remains the one venue where every country um, can come speak and play a role. And what we've seen in recent years is that leaders of quite small nations like Mia Motley of Barbados have used the General Assembly as a platform to, you know, make quite significant interventions on the state of the international system. In the case of Motley, this has been around reforming the international financial institutions. So I think the General Assembly does still matter, but, you know, we're we're New Yorkers. We know that every now and again, people say that, like, Brooklyn or Queens is becoming cooler than Manhattan. Um, And right now... uh, sort of the G20 or the G7, you know, they, they are the cool hip boroughs. <laughs> that, that, that's, where the, that's where the fun kids are going. Whereas um, the, the UN in Manhattan looks a little bit staid and a little bit um, inert relative to some of these other, other organizations. Yes, I'm inclined to think that's an excellent analogy for <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> Uh, but it sort of does raise this question. I mean, early on, you said uh, uh, focus or power or something is moving away from New York. And it seems to me that is also correct. Uh, but, you know, to what extent does that mean that there's a sort of multipolar world that's come into existence that is, you know, a corollary of the relative decline of new york slash the united states slash the west or is that you know a misguided way of thinking about what's going on in the world i mean to us in the west although not necessarily to lots of you know maybe the global south uh the war russia's war on ukraine is you know the return of major power conflict i mean insofar as you see you know, the Western side of this as part proxy war, part, you know, siding with Ukraine unambiguously, with, uh, you know, as compared to Russia. So I'm sort of curious how you would, you know, uh, assess that kind of those relationships. I mean, obviously, big power tension is a reality and big power tension cuts across not only UN diplomacy, but also diplomacy in the G20 and quite a lot of other forums. Uh, You will recall that Xi Jinping very pointedly didn't go to the G20 meeting in Delhi, um, because I I think he saw India using the G20 as a platform to challenge China um, on the global stage. So you have an increasingly fraught geopolitical picture, and that is going to affect the UN Security Council, it's going to affect the G20, it's going to affect cooperation in a whole range of of spaces. That wasn't actually a huge talking point last week in New York, because the, the majority of leaders who did come to the General Assembly were trying to brush those divisions aside and focus on areas of common interest. And so Joe Biden, for example, quite pointedly said very little about China um, in his 
his speech to other world leaders. And when he did talk about China, he talked about China in quite a conciliatory way. Um, you know, he said that, yes, China and the US are competitors, but they, I think his phrase was sustainable competition. You know, that they're, they're two big powers that will have friction, but they can still work together. And so the, the theme in a lot of speeches like Biden's last week was, you know, yes, it's a divided world, but we still have shared challenges, of which the most obvious is climate change, um, but global health issues, international development are, are also very prominent. I mean, that was nice to hear. Um, once the leaders leave, a lot of the geopolitical realities butt back in. And it, that there's no question that right now the U.S. is in a competition not only with Russia uh, at the U.N., for influence, but very much with China. And you know, the, the Chinese and the U.S. are constantly battling to shape debates around many topics at the U.N., um, especially around development and human rights. So... I mean, I, I think we just live with the reality that this is now a a divided and competitive multilateral system. Uh, it it was generally positive that most leaders in in New York were talking about ways to ease that tension. Uh, I, I mean, I do think it's important that you hear Biden and others acknowledging that there has to be some lid on global competition, uh, but. You know, the reality doesn't always fit with the rhetoric. I mean, often the competition is is the most obvious feature um, at the end of the day. Well, it seems to me one of the issues that is, you know, um, constraining the UN at the moment, obviously, is the uh, the Ukraine, the, the Russian war on Ukraine. I mean, you have one of the major powers uh, and one of the P5 members in, you know, in a conflict that much of the rest of the world, or at least certainly the West, you know, condemns. And so, you know, th for that reason, and perhaps others, uh, the UN is seen as not doing very much around the Ukraine conflict, which I think is not, you know, doing it any favors in the public relations department, so to speak. So I wonder, you know, how you would respond to that kind of conundrum that faces the organization and what what are the consequences of that going to be for the un's whatever prestige legitimacy influence etc we have to be frank um the security council has failed ukraine uh there's no question of that uh, because russia has a veto in the council it has ensured that you know that part of the un system has had no real impact on the war. I, I I would say, in fairness to the UN, other bits of the institution have tried to compensate for the Council's inaction. Uh, the General Assembly uh, was very active in 2022, passing a series of resolutions by big majorities condemning Russia and supporting Ukraine's territorial integrity. Uh, also in 2022, Secretary General Guterres um, pulled off, you know, quite a diplomatic coup by helping to negotiate the Black Sea Grain Initiative uh, in partnership with 
unprecedented Erdogan of Turkey. And although it doesn't get a lot of media play, you know, the UN is very present on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, according to according to the UN zone figures, uh, the organization has provided some sort of humanitarian assistance to at least 7 million Ukrainians this year, which is, uh, I think, about a quarter of the population, maybe, maybe just under that. Um, so the UN and UN agencies are, are in the field. So I think if you if you sort of put the Security Council to one side, you actually find that the UN is doing everything it can to deal with this war. Um, I should also have mentioned the Human Rights Council and the UN Human Rights System, which has provided some pretty compelling and, and, and horrible evidence about uh, Russian war crimes in recent weeks. Um, so that is all to the good. I think that is underreported. But at the end of the day, most outside commentators and certainly most Ukrainians um, associate the UN with the, the Security Council and the fact that the Security Council is predictably jammed over this issue is hurting the organization. Um, one, you know, one star of the General Assembly week was President Zelensky, who was able to come in person this year, uh, in contrast to last year where he had he had to stay in Kiev. And Zelensky made a pretty detailed presentation of all the UN's failings when he he spoke in the Security Council. Um, he argued that you need Security Council reform. And I think, you know, UN members have differing levels of affection for Zelensky and diff differing levels of sympathy for Ukraine, but they would all pretty much agree that you do need some fairly serious reform if the institution is going to stay relevant. Um, so, you know, he, he did strike quite a, quite a strong chord with those remarks. Right. So maybe to bring this to a conclusion, I'd ask you, you know, as uh, UN director of the International Crisis Group, an organization for which I have great respect, I have to say, um, you know, what, what's on your agenda for the next, you know, five years, uh, or, you know, in the, in the nearish term, you know, what are you beyond the sorts of things that we've been talking about? What will you be paying attention to? What will you be working on? Well, I think anyone who has been active around the uh, General Assembly week will tell you that the main item on their agenda is getting some sleep. Um, and I'm still working. I'm still working on that. Uh, still not getting quite as much as I would like. Um, but I mean, I think going forward, you know, for an organization like Crisis Group, um, the sad reality is, is that we have a lot of work. And, you know, I, for me, actually, one of the most telling and painful moments in the General Assembly week was uh, not related to Ukraine, but was related to the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh. And, you know, while world leaders were meeting in New York, Azerbaijan effectively overran Nagorno-Karabakh and has sparked a, a big refugee crisis. Um, the Security Council had to meet uh, on Thursday of last week, um, the Thursday of the General Assembly, 
to discuss what everyone understood is a major humanitarian emergency and the council really didn't have any response to this crisis and you know there are various complicated reasons for that not least tensions between the western powers and, and russia over how to address events in the caucasus but nonetheless it brought home i thought in a rather pointed way the limitations of the un on the world stage today and if you look beyond Nagorno-Karabakh and if you look beyond Ukraine the UN is struggling in a lot of cases including the Sahel including Sudan including Myanmar um there's there are a lot of pretty vicious conflicts out there where the UN has mediators um and and in some cases it has peacekeepers and they are they're finding it very hard to make a significant impact uh, Crisis Group puts out a, a publication you can find on our website every year called 10 Challenges for the UN in the Year Ahead. Um, this year, I was very struck that looking at the Sahel, looking at Afghanistan, looking at Ukraine, the challenges we were identifying were not can the UN solve the problems in these cases. It was you know, can the UN really maintain any role at all in some of these crisis situations. Uh, all of these crises are different. All of these crises pose very specific, very unique problems to the UN. But, you know, you don't have to be a, a geopolitical genius to realize that the UN is struggling in a lot of these cases because of the big power politics that are ever present in the Security Council. Um, so a lot of our work at Crisis Group going forward is going to be thinking about what's left for the UN, where, where are the entry points for the UN, you know, be they humanitarian or diplomatic or whatever, in these conflicts where the space for multilateral engagement is, is very small. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty bleak picture. I mean, to be quite honest, it... it feels quite removed from all the diplomatic jollity of the UN high level week but i think most people around the UN would tell you that the high level week is um it's a very special event <laughs> um, but uh the real work of the UN is is really much more about what's going on on the ground in all these very difficult situations which we now have to turn back to and um address in more detail well that is something of a bleak way to end <laughs> this conversation, but obviously it gives you lots of uh, work to do, and maybe not the kind that you would have preferred to be doing, but nonetheless uh, important work. So that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Richard Gowan of the International Crisis Group for sharing his insights about the UN and its future. Look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.